The four kids in the lighthouse stared at the figure in the doorway, their friend nailed to the door behind him. What the fuck? Bradley let out. Who are you? The figure laughed, taking a step forward. He pulled the door closed, obscuring their view of scary and sanitary. The phone between them lit just the immediate area, but they could hear the damp footsteps of a figure creeping closer to them. Run! Someone said, and three of the four leapt into a sprint. George reached for his phone, but fear overtook him as the figure's footsteps grew louder, closer. He followed the sound of his friend's feet, his glasses bouncing slightly as he ran. Behind him, between breaths, George heard the soft, rhythmic footsteps of the figure, never quite growing faint. Is he keeping pace with me, George thought? The only way to run was up the lighthouse steps, worn and rotted. Each step cried out as George climbed. He couldn't hear his friends behind him, only the soft, rhythmic footsteps creeping closer and closer behind. As the steps leveled, George found himself in a room whose dimensions didn't make any sense. Somehow, the room had corners. The next set of stairs up lie across the square room. As his eyes adjusted to the dim light, he realized beds lined the room's walls. In each bed was a person, unmoving, unblinking. He shouted for them to run, to get away from the creeping horror whose footsteps still rang out behind him. But the bedridden people didn't move. He wished he had his phone so he could see them better, but decided to press on. He could sense the breathing of the people he passed and felt glad to know that they were alive. But it was curious why no one woke when he shouted. Lightning flashed through the window on the far wall, illuminating the last bed on the road closest to the stairs. George shrieked, running to the bed's side. Bradley lay in the bed, asleep. Come on, Bradley. Get up. George shook the body of his friend. This isn't funny. There's no way you had enough time to fall asleep. The footsteps reached the top of the stairs. There's no time for this man. Get up. Get up. But nothing George did could wake Bradley. The footsteps reached the middle of the room. George let go of his friend's unresponsive body and began to mount the next set of stairs, his mind reeling. Welcome, listeners, to part two of the Frightened Times. The dark middle chapter, you might say. Ha ha ha, my name's Henry. And my name's John. And together we're here to spook your socks right off. We're here to scream at you until your skeleton jumps out of your mouth. Here on Zero Credits, the show where we scare you about things. I'm very often scared about things. I'm scared of literally everything. But sometimes I'm also scared of nothing. Not to say that I'm brave, just that the idea of nothing scares me. <laughs> Quite the opposite of brave, because it's, it's literally the concept of nothingness that is scary. You know what they say, that bravery is not the absence of fear, but bravery is the presence of courage. Oh, who said that? You know, that one guy. Sounds like a, uh, Churchill. Sounds like Churchill said that. Yeah, he, I mean, he had his lucid moments. <laughs> yeah, you know, when he was telling people that they would be ugly. I mean, he uh, he had a lot of really good burns, Churchill. That's a thing that's going to be lost to history, is the ability to give a really high-quality burn. Yeah. Are burns scary? Oh, I'm terrified of burns. I'm kind of afraid of fire in a weird way. Oh, well. 
That has nothing to do with our first story tonight. Oh, wait. Do you want me to give that another try? Uh, I don't know if you're going to get it, but you can give it another try. I'm a horrified of mountains. No. Okay, that, well, I'll give it one more. I'll give it one more. <laughs> one more try. Oh, I sure am scared of matter. <laughs> Just all matter. All encompassing. All I matter. guess that counts. I don't know. But uh, I hear tell from you that you've got a scary story for us. I have another scary unresolved mystery to share with everyone here. Ooh, I can't wait. Uh, this one coming from the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit on reddit.com. Ooh. And of course, I'm talking about Encephalitis Lethargica. Oh. Which is known as the Sleepy Sickness. Go on. And this post was written up by Bat Country Tourist. So, giving that guy credit. And here we go into the story. I'll uh, sink back and have a listen. In 1916, a mysterious plague known as Encephalitis Lethargica, or Sleepy Sickness, began infecting millions, ravaging nervous systems and plunging victims into months or decades-long slumber. Others were rendered frozen in speechless living statues. By 1928, it had completely vanished. It started with soldiers in the trenches of World War I collapsing into a stupor and eventually afflicted five million people before new infections declined and ceased altogether. Roughly one-third of patients infected by Encephalitis Lethargica died. One-third recovered, though rarely without some form of lingering neurological damage, and one-third were rendered frozen or comatose. The exact cause and identity of the disease is unknown, as is what caused it to vanish so quickly. Dr. Oliver Sachs, a neurologist who began studying the disease and working with surviving victims in the 1960s, wrote a best-selling book called Awakenings, based on his experiences that provides haunting descriptions of the symptoms. Parkinsonism, catatonia, melancholia, trance, Passivity, immobility, frigidity, apathy. This was the quality of the decades-long sleep which closed over their heads in the 1930s and thereafter. Some patients indeed passed into a timeless state, an eventless stasis, which deprived them of all sense of history and happening. Isolated circumstances, fire alarms, dinner gongs, the unexpected arrival of friends or news, might set them suddenly and startlingly alive for a minute, wonderfully active and agog with excitement. But these were rare flashes in the depths of their darkness. For the most part, they lay motionless and speechless, and in some cases almost willless and thoughtless, or with their thoughts and feelings unchangingly fixed at the point where the long sleep had closed in upon them. Their minds remained perfectly clear and unclouded, but their whole beings, so to speak, were in cysts or cocooned. The last known surviving victim, Philip Leather, was infected as an 11-year-old and subsequently spent over 70 years as a near-living statue until his death in 2003. 
and one particularly creepy incident, shortly before succumbing to the disorder, a woman identified only as Miss R complained of dreams that proved unsettlingly prophetic. Miss R had a series of dreams about one central theme. She dreamed she was in prison in an inaccessible castle, but the castle had the form and shape of herself. She dreamed of enchantments, bewitchments, entrancements. She dreamed that she had become a living sentient statue of stone. She dreamed that the world had come to a stop. She dreamed that she had fallen into a sleep so deep that nothing could wake her. She dreamed of a death which was different from death. In the absence of any known treatments and with interest declining after new infections ceased, many victims and eventually even the disease itself came to be largely forgotten. While working in a hospital that housed some of the remaining victims during the 1960s, the aforementioned Dr. Sachs discovered that administering L-DOPA to the remaining survivors caused many to return to lucidity, albeit often only temporarily. Unable to work or to see their needs, difficult to look after, helpless, hopeless, so bound up in their illnesses that they could neither react nor relate, frequently abandoned by their friends and their families, without specific treatment of any use to them, these patients were put away in chronic hospitals, nursing homes, lunatic asylums, or special colonies. And there, for the most part, they were totally forgotten, the lepers of the present century. There they died in their hundreds of thousands. And yet some lived on, in diminishing numbers, getting older and frailer, though usually looking younger than their age. Inmates of institutions, profoundly isolated, deprived of experience, half forgetting, half dreaming of the world they once lived in. Some of these patients had achieved a state of icy hopelessness akin to serenity, a realistic hopelessness, in those pre-DOPA days, they knew they were doomed, and they accepted this with all the courage and equanimity they could muster. Other patients, and perhaps to some extent all of these patients, whatever their surface serenity, had a fierce and impotent sense of outrage. They had been swindled out of the best years of life. They were consumed by the sense of time lost, time wasted, and they yearned incessantly for a twofold miracle. Not only a cure for their sickness, but an indemnification for the loss of their lives. They wanted to be given back the time they had lost. That is, uh, deeply disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is some very frightening, like, shit, man. So, uh, and I might be totally wrong about this, but I think that L-Dopa is a dopamine precursor? I believe so. So it almost sounds as though these uh, millions and millions of people were experiencing some kind of very extreme uh, kind of virulent anhedonia, just the inability to derive pleasure or motivation from things. That might be it. Because it, did it did it say that they it it described it as a sleep, but it almost sounded like it was describing it as a stupor. Yeah, it was like a sleep they couldn't control. 
like people would fall asleep and stay asleep for decades or until they died. And it almost doesn't sound like a coma. Yeah, they, they don't describe it. Like, comatose is one-third of the result, but the other third of the result is just remaining in this locked sleep state. That's really scary. Yeah, you hear about, like, locked-in syndrome where, like, the body is... Or, or the mind is conscious, but the body won't respond to any of the, like, the neurological signals that the brain is sending but this is completely different because you're not conscious at all you're just asleep for years and years unable to wake up and particularly the part where the woman was discussing sleeping and having dreams of her her body being a castle she couldn't possibly escape from yeah it it almost sounds like it it minimized these people's consciousnesses in a weird hippie way of putting it. Yeah, I I would have to I have to wonder about the ones that he that he was able to wake up with the L dopa because it, it says like um they 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 would wake up but they would they would also it it, it was temporary it was a temporary fix so like they did they know they were gonna fall back asleep again. Oh, I wouldn't want to know that. <laughs> I mean, can yeah. you imagine falling asleep and waking up in your 40? No, that's insane. I mean, it, essentially, like, if you think about it, if this was something that was significantly widespread and was more widespread than it was, that's it for humanity. I don't mean like us as a species, but that's it for the concept of humanity for everyone Who's afflicted because to be human is to have experiences over time, right? Right. And if you're robbed of those experiences, if you just, you know, fall into this this catatonic sleep or this anhedonia, and then years and years pass, then you haven't been human. You haven't lived at all. Yeah, you're, you're like an alien landing on the planet for the first time. Like, you look human, but you aren't. You, you're you're like a newborn baby again. And there was uh, no cure and no cause found? They couldn't find a cure, they couldn't find a cause, and it simply stopped happening around 1928. I don't like diseases that just vanish. <laughs> because they could come back. Yeah, because I want to close the book on a disease. I want to have a bubonic plague where we know where the one sample is, and every once in a while there's an outbreak, we're like, I will cure that. Yeah. Well, you know, this could be one of those things like uh, the the dancing mania that kind of swept the nation in the 60s, where people just started dancing for no reason, and some people would dance to their death. It could be just like a widespread hysteria that kind of swept up and for some reason the body reproduced and i mean that's something that's horrible to think about anyways widespread hysteria things with essentially no obvious cause that spread like because you were talking about the the glass syndrome yeah the the people who feel like they're made of glass the idea that you could get hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have a kind of shared hysteria with no physical systemic cause is very spooky. Yeah, and the, the the human brain is powerful. It if you believe something, 
like a placebo or even a no nocebo effect, the body has a way of like creating the results you expect. I mean, there's that old adage that if you walk up behind someone and you poke them on the back with an ice cube and then when they turn around you show them a hot poker, they'll develop a blister. Yeah. The the body is really powerful and really weird in the way it works. I mean, that's something that the body does fantastically well and really it's the only thing... The brain's chief job is to make sense of stimulus to stimulus to make little gaps between we feel this thing we see this thing we hear this thing what did it mean so if you could significantly convince someone that something was real there's no saying that their body wouldn't make it effectively real yeah like we like to say often on this podcast perception is reality so if your body perceives something to be real It'll take the, the like it'll fill the gap to make that reality true for your body. I don't like it. <laughs> it it's you know, so you just gotta convince yourself you can fly, and then your brain will find a way to fly. Perfect. I I, uh, I think that there are certain things that are almost too horrifying for me to think about. If we want to talk about deep seated actual phobias, I really don't like the idea of my perception being like something that is other from my consciousness like if i perceive something to be true and it is different than reality then that's just how it is yeah so so like your your nemesis in the comic book realm would be like an illusionist somebody who could make you think or believe and that reality is different than it is oh uh, that's it's a long-held fear of mine I really don't like the idea of talking in my sleep because I'm communicating with an objectively real world with a, a different perception. I don't like being blackout drunk, uh, but that hasn't stopped me in the past, I guess. <laughs> and I, I don't like being on, like, uh, anesthetic. I don't like being on powerful hospital drugs that make me say things and do things that aren't, you know, congruous with reality. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can relate to that because, like, I, I've been in states where I hear myself talking and I know what I'm gonna uh, what I'm about to say, but I totally and utterly disagree with what I'm saying, and I have to stop and think, why am I saying that? Why can't I stop saying this? And and it's frightening because you're not in control in those moments, but you're aware that you're not in control. Yeah, I had a moment. I might have talked about this on the podcast, but I'm a uh... When I sleep alone, thankfully I hem this in when I'm with other people, but when I sleep alone, I tend to, like, toss and turn a lot. Yeah. And there was a moment when I, uh, I like to sleep in a bed that's next to a wall. Don't ask me why. Monsters. Uh, but I was... <laughs> okay. I was laying down in this bed that was next to a wall, and I was in that kind of beautiful, groggy, delirious state where you first wake up and you're kind of half-dreaming, half-awake... Yeah. In this moment, I saw myself and felt myself, like, reach my right hand out forward. I extended my thumb and then, like, pointed my thumb towards the sky. Boy. And I was like, that's funny. Why are, you, why are you doing that? And then, with all the force I could muster, I, like, whipped my body around and slammed my extended thumb into the wall. Why? <laughs> 
to I have no idea why like as it was happening my brain was going no 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 don't do that why what and it hurt so bad wow you you were possessed by some type of self-inflicting pain demon I I guess maybe I was dreaming something or I don't know it was spooky yeah I, I mean if there's one thing that we have to experience this world it's our body and we we operate with the preconceived preconceived notion that we are the only ones in control of our body yep so when agency is taken away from us it's 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 frightening it's it's uh it's horror like it's a deeper fear than just like being afraid of spiders it's it's true like on a primal level horror yeah, I mean, as we discussed last week, uh, fear could be described as an aversion to loss. Yeah. And the one thing in our lives that we are the most covetous of is our uh, consciousness. So the loss of your consciousness, giving that up to something else, oh no, I, that, I don't know about other people, but I hate the idea of that. Yeah, like mind control or possession or just straight up your body not responding to your impulses anymore mm-hmm. that yeah that that's some that's some gruesome stuff my thing is sleepwalking and it's it's a lot of people sleepwalk the idea of sleepwalking fills me with such such existential dread that if i knew i was a sleepwalker i would chain myself in the closet <laughs> yeah sleepwalking's dangerous like pe- people have you know walked into the middle of the street at night people have walked off buildings it's moving without consciousness is frightening i used to date someone who was a sleepwalker and are are they okay yeah they're okay this was actually before we were dating but we were staying at a mutual house and i was sleeping on the couch and other person was sleeping somewhere else i don't know probably a bed that's where most people sleep And then I awoke at maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, and she was just, like, standing over me. Oh. Like, staring straight ahead. No. Like, gently swaying. Of course. Uh, Because, yeah, of course. um, I was upset and made a loud noise of being upset. And I guess she woke up, and she was like, oh, yeah, I do that sometimes. I'm like, no. No. Uh -uh. This is not okay. Never, ever do this. Oh. I've slept walked. Oh no, God! Why don't you lock yourself away forever in a tomb? <laughs> it was. I didn't do anything. I don't know. It was just like a weird thing where I, I got out of bed, walked into my bathroom, which shares a wall with my parents' rooms, and turned on the light. Didn't close the door, and I just stared into the mirror. Oh and, no! Uh, eventually, my mom came. Because she saw the light, and she was like, uh, are, are you okay? And I didn't, you know, I didn't say anything. I was like, are you going to be sick? And I didn't say anything, and she, she just kind of guided me back to bed and tucked me in. And I, like, I kind of remember this, which is the weird thing. But, uh, it was just like, I, I can only imagine, like, from my mom's perspective, a young boy staring into a mirror at night, not responding... That's some horror movie stuff right there. It's crazy to think how close you were to the mirror demons getting you. Oh, no, I, I can't. 
I can't joke about that. They almost had you. Like, they were just, like, coming around the corner in the mirror, but... Uh, mirrors freak me out. I, like, in movies, of course, it's, it's a thing. They've made mirror movies and, and Oculus and stuff like that. Like, uh, and I think it has something to do with, like, that's a visual representation of my body kind of moving on its own. Also, I think that one of the things that's that's super creepy about mirrors, but I'm also terrified of mirrors. And I think it's because mirrors are a representation of everything you can't currently see. Yeah, cuz like you can't you can't see your face. You can't you can see your face, you can't see behind you. Yeah. And you're like this is a representation of everything that I would be least prepared to deal with right now. Yeah. And it's also like playing into that everything you can't see. When you look away from a mirror, you can't see the mirror anymore. Oh, no. So like, how do you... And that's that's where it always gets you in the movie, where it's like the, the, the character looks away, but the reflection doesn't. You know, it's because it's playing in that fear that the character can't see that the mirror didn't reflect. Yeah, like, the character looks away and then, like, the mirror version of you, like, tears your own head in half. Yeah. You know, normal stuff. Normal stuff. Or it just, like, sinisterly stares at the the, the character, like, I'm gonna get you because I'm a mirror demon. I, uh, I love my girlfriend to death. Uh, but she is, like, a good interior decorator and puts up a lot of stuff. And, uh, so we have a big, long hallway in our apartment. Okay. And she put not one giant mirror on one end of the hallway, but one on each end. <laughs> oh, God. One of them is uh, under a, like, dim mood light, and the other one is in a pitch black room. Oh, this sounds terrible. It's really horrifying when the house is completely dark and you're like, I guess I just have to w- watch myself walk toward this mirror for ten seconds. <laughs> While the thing behind me creeps up and snatches me at the last second. Hey Henry, do you want to know something? What's up, John? You know what's really, what makes life really difficult? What? If every time you walk by a doorway you imagine a big long-fingered hand coming out to touch you and it just barely doesn't. <laughs> Oh, uh, you've got a, you've got a fear of being the character transitioning in the scene with the evil and like the evil, the the antagonist or the evil force lingering in the pan shot. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of being in the in between space at the intro of a horror movie between being a normal hapless teen and being the person they find like ripped in half in a chimney. Oh. Uh. We, we all want to think that we would be the ones to make it out to the end, but statistically speaking, that's not us. Oh no, no way. Not me at all. Yeah. yeah. yeah mir- mirrors are horrible and creepy. Mirrors are horrible and, I don't know, it, all, of, all of the fears that we're talking about today have to do with consciousness, but they also, have to, they also deal with sight. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's something about like or maybe this ties back into perception being reality and because a lot of a lot of a lot of the times that we're afraid it's our we're we're scaring ourselves yeah i was uh, i was painting the inside of a house one time and i like 
breathed and I was in a corner of a room where the breath echoed and it sounded like someone was breathing behind me and I've almost never been more scared in my whole life. Yeah, a lot of the instances where I have been most afraid where it's like I'm walking back to my room at night or something like that. Like I I get a a thought of something horrific happening and then I I quicken my pace to like to to get to my room faster. But then, like, there's a split moment when I open the door where it's just like, what if the horror is in my room? And now I'm afraid of my room and the rest of the house. But all of that is in my head. Have you ever gone up some stairs? <laughs> in my in, in my entire life, John, have I ever gone up stairs? So, like, imagining, imagine you're going up some stairs in a house. Yeah. You know what's really crazy about going upstairs? You can't see... You can't see beyond the top of the stairs. Because every single time you look down at the stairs, the there's just this weird, creepy monster that's peeking out from behind the nearest door. And every time you look back up, he just like goes back in. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. No, um, when I when I lived in the first time I lived alone in my apartment, I had this weird thought because my the bedroom in that apartment was was larger than like the main room itself. And I didn't have a lot of things filling it, so I had my bed against one wall, and then there was a large gap to my closet, and I just would randomly get this feeling that there was a small, like, girl ghost standing in front of the closet, and it would creep me out, and I slept with a light on, but there was no evidence that a small girl had ever lived there. It, It was just a feeling I got. That haunted oh, that, me. that small girl died 20 years ago. Yeah, well, that's why I purposely don't learn about the people who live in my apartments beforehand. Because I don't want to learn that they died here. I actually completely forgot an incident where I actually sleepwalked. Oh, oh, ooh. You should strap yourself down. I uh, Yeah, I should. I was a child, to be fair. And, and? Uh, it was... I remember we used to live in this kind of split-level house. It was like a mix between like a New Orleans shotgun-style house and like a ranch house in a weird way. Basically, the middle was big and long, and then there were rooms coming off of that. And extending further than they would in a shotgun house. Gotcha. But I remember having a dream, and I had taken some NyQuil because I was very sick. And I was taking NyQuil at a young age... Less than 12, and you shouldn't. Because it used to make me hallucinate. Ooh. And I went to sleep that night, and I had a dream that my house was filled with, like, the residual light of a television. Oh. Like that kind of flickery, bluish, blurry, ethereal light. Yeah. And I saw a whole bunch of shadows moving around. So I got up from my bed, and I went up the split-level stairs to the kitchen that was part of the big, long part of the house. And these, like, big, tall, hairy people who were, like, crouching down, like, crouch-walking, were, like, carrying my family members away, and there were, like, tons of them. Like, they didn't... Like, they had, like, big, weird, long faces, but not, like, long vertically, like, long horizontally. and they were just like carrying my family members away and then like they all crowded around me and then i woke up and i was sitting in the kitchen nope yep nope 
That's a real thing that happened. I kind of blocked that out, and now I feel really creeped out. <laughs> Burn down the house. It, there's no. There's no saving it. I think. Uh, I think a pastor owns it now. Oh, good. Maybe he can deal with that. Oh, Jesus! What happened, Jesus Christ? S- sorry, the demons got me. Oh well, that's that's sad. Uh, the demon might have been my cat jumping up on the desk. <laughs> Nothing like a good cat scare to remind you that there are real things in the world. Ah, uh, that went, that made me go from like slightly like flushed scared from recounting my own story to actually legit spooked. <laughs> because an actual thing was was happening. Yeah, my my spook meter is topped out right now. Whoo. Oh. Well, say hi to your cat. Hi Maggie. Did you hear her? She said meow. Oh, I didn't hear her. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've uh, whew. Anyway. Oh. Gotta cool down. Well, uh, let's, let's transition so that we don't scare ourselves with her own experiences. Yeah, let's transition. I've got a, since you just gave us that sweet, scary story, I've got a quick recommendation segment. Oh, a quick rec- recommendation segment? Yeah, so there are quite a few days left in the month of Halloween. October, Almost. rather. The month, the month of Halloween. Yeah, there's almost half of it left, so you have a lot of time to catch up on your scary movies. Yeah, why not? So I've got a scary movie to recommend. Oh God, let's just do it. Uh, now Henry, I think that you really enjoy scary movies. I think you're a big fan. I hate them. I can't watch them. They are the death of me. <laughs> they are the literal death of you. Yeah, they are my bane. So, uh, I watched a movie last night that was recommended to me by some friends, and it is called Splinter. Splinter? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty low-budget horror movie, and yeah. it is directed by Toby Wilkins, who I am not sure has done anything else. Okay. And ostensibly the plot is that there is a forest... That has not been logged in a long time because the trees are not conducive to it. And I think they specifically say that it hasn't been logged in over 400 years. That is a long time to not have been logged. And the main characters are a man named Seth and a woman whose name I forget. I remember Seth's name because I'm not sure I've ever hated a horror movie character more. Oh, you hated the character? I hate Seth because he's super ineffectual. Uh, he's uh, hilariously, hilariously milk toast. Is he like, you know, is he like in a video game when you fail the, the quick time response and the, it doesn't game over, but it, it has you like trip over yourself? It's, it's almost like that if it was all in his mind and his garbage stupid mind. Oh, God. So he is a cargo shorts wearing a PhD candidate in biology. Of course. Does he study trees? Uh, He does study trees. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, He talks a lot about trees and is just kind of really annoying and says a lot of things that are really annoying. Anyway, so they are traveling uh, to camp and have a romantic anniversary getaway. Ooh, nice. And they're waylaid by a gun-carrying redneck and his drug-addicted partner. Oh, never mind. 
And they are taken hostage, and the vehicle begins to overheat. Well, no. Firstly, they run over like a squirrel in the road. What? They accidentally hit a squirrel. Or a weird weird thing. The rednecks, or...? Well, so they're taken hostage in one big car, so they're all in the car. Okay, okay. So they hit a squirrel, and then they get out to check on the squirrel, and the squirrel is like a big red pancake that is, like, breathing and covered in black spines. Okay, it's been corrupted by trees. So it tries to attack them, they freak out, they start driving again, and then their car overheats, and then they go to a gas station where a gas station attendant is a horrible monster covered in spines. What? And the... I guess he was, like, killed in a bathroom, but... It's it's worth knowing this movie is very low budget, but it does a lot of really good things with the money it has. Uh, A lot of the shots are are very frantic. The the effects are really good given their limited budget. But the... I guess it's a theme. I don't know. It's a theme in thousands of horror movies. But there's essentially this, like, alien or, like, pre-human organism... That is infecting humans and turning them into, like, spine-covered zombies that sense heat. Okay, and and so the spines would be the splinter? Yeah, so they're covered in, like, these black, like, long cactus needles. And if you get pricked by one, you become a zombie? Yes. Ah. And the, the terrifying thing about it is it is fairly clear from the outset that these things are really fast and have no care for their own being one of the more disturbing scenes is after uh, they encounter one of these things it just like continually slams its head against the glass door of the gas station trying to get in it's it's really it's really scary that sounds yeah that sounds scary as af and it's uh it's very limited in scope. It all takes place in this gas station once they arrive. And then it's just these four characters trying to find a way out of the situation. It's only, I think, an hour and 20 minutes long. But the reason why I thought of it is because you said, statistically speaking earlier... We would not survive. And the character of Seth routinely says, well, statistically speaking, and I think that if you are in a horror movie type situation and you utter the phrase, well, statistically speaking, you are deserving of death. Yeah, you kind of deserve to die. And it plays into what we're talking about, losing control, these people being overtaken by this weird spine monster. Yeah, you're right. They're losing their ability to act of their own free will because they're literally being taken over by a weird spine parasite. And I would recommend that people watch this because it's, like I said, it's amazing that they made the movie for so little money and it looks so good and is so scary. Like, I haven't I haven't been legitimately freaked out by a horror movie in a while and this one really got me. Oh, there, there's something about low-budget horror movies that... I guess because so much attention to detail has to be there for them to pull off the movie with that kind of budget. But it it seems more often than not, the low-budget, kind of indie vibe-ish horror movies are the ones that are most effective. And uh, since they did have a limited budget, they do have moments where they clearly spent a lot of that budget. Oh, like in uh, graphics and effects? 
in mostly practical effects, like things that actually uh, were generated in the real world with like goop and plastic. Ugh, goop but I would plastic. recommend people watch this. It's very good. But I would also say that if you are someone who has an aversion to violence, uh, to skip it. Is it very gory? It is very gory. No, thank you. I mean, it's... This is one of the least gory things that happens, but, like, there's a... A door gets slammed on one of these monsters' hands and that cuts off, like, a chunk of the hand and three fingers, and then, like, is still moving and walking around and trying to eat people. Oh, because they're spines. The spines are the central nervous system. And there's a... Boy, howdy, there's a thing that happens that I don't want to spoil, but God... Yeah. I don't know. Gore doesn't... It's tough for Gore to freak me out if it's done well. But this was both done well and freaked me out. I don't like Gore. It, uh... It did not seem gratuitous. It didn't seem unnecessary. But, ugh. Ugh. Body horror, man. Body horror gets me. Yeah, I mean... it's a legitimate scary thing. That's path of alien is body horror. I mean, I think that's going into what we were talking about is like body horror is like losing control, losing your body. Ugh. Yeah, losing your body can fall under a bunch of categories. Like we were talking about losing the ability to act, but you can also just lose parts of your body. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of being an amputee. Yeah, no. It, I've gotten to a, like a weird state where if I watch someone like lose a body part in a movie or a TV show or something, I just have to think, oh, that's gone forever for that character. Like the reality hits me a lot more now, I guess, that I'm older than it, it would when I was younger. Though I, I will say that one of my favorite, and this is very sophomoric, this is very juvenile, but one of my favorite things to do or see done to fictional characters in something that takes place over a long period of time is for them to lose an eye or an arm why because it it's like stakes you know it's a huge change has happened to their character well yeah from 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 a narrative standpoint and from a character development standpoint it it, it is more interesting than if they just shrug off anything that comes their way and you don't see it a lot of a lot these days. Like people get shot and they just keep moving, or they get shot and they die. You don't see people have to deal with with a crippling industry industry with a crippling injur- injury these days. That was something I really liked about early season Walking Dead is when characters were shot or had anything amputated. It took a long, long time for them to be okay. Yeah, and you know. People usually only get hurt if it's like the final moments of the film or something, so it becomes like a sacrificial moment. But like the result of that is you get a lot of a lot of incompetent grunts who can't hurt anybody. So why do they have so many of them? And I mean, this is a, this is a weird thing to bring up, but you know, like in anime and stuff, whenever people are fighting with swords, the non-lethal thing that happens is someone just gets, like, sliced in the shoulder. Yeah, and it's like, they keep fighting, but it's like, wait, how are they still fighting? Yeah, if you get a sword sunk in your shoulder, like, through your clavicle, you're donezo. Uh, one of the the greatest offenders of that is uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Oh. I've been watching that 
lately. It has nothing to do with spooky or horror, but it's every episode, it's like somebody is grievously injured, and by the next episode, there's no mention of the injury. They're totally fine through the power of friendship and muscles. And muscles, mainly muscles. A lot of muscles. But, uh... I, I think we, we've been dancing around a, a point I want to bring up, and, and thanks for the, the movie recommendation. But I kind of just wanted to talk about horror movies in general as like a weird mirror to society. Oh! <laughs> uh, would you agree with the statement that horror movies sort of reflect either societal or cultural fears? Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. Yeah, I, I, if you would have said no, I, I have like an article from The New Yorker that... No, not, sorry, not the New Yorker. The New York Times uh, that would help sort of cement that idea. Um, but it's kind of dated. It's from 2000, so I'm not going to read from it. Oh, that's fair, I guess. So if we just work from the premise that horror movies are a reflection of societal fears or societal concerns. And like, just for an example, if you have no idea what, or what I'm talking about. Uh, think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's frequently read as a critique of McCarthy-era pod people. Mm-hmm. To quote from that New York Times article I'm not reading. I mean, I think that a lot of what... A lot of our fears and a lot of what is effective in horror movies, and I mean, there are so many gatekeepers to getting a horror movie made. Like, you have to appease yourself as a writer and a director, then you have to appease executives, and you have to have something that resonates, or maybe you used to have something that resonated pretty well for it to get made. But I think that almost as a, as a hysteria can be shared, we as segmented cultures can kind of have one thing embedded in our minds that scares us. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at, uh, let's say, Night of the Living Dead. Okay. So, Night of the Living Dead was genius because it played on these ideas of, of otherness and basically segregation from other people. The fear of your neighbor being someone who does not accept you or wants to kill you. Exactly. And then it was expounded on, you know, the human survivors are then an extension of that because that's humanity laid bare. These people are being like, no, I hate you in the way you are, and I don't care if we're trying to survive because my bias has risen to the top. Yeah, it's it's it becomes this weird kind of dire, dark survival thing where it's like, it's us versus them, but it's not us together it's me versus everything it, 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 it you would think it would be unifying but it's totally alienating and i mean if if we want to talk about like alienation that is a huge theme in horror movies that kind of spikes whenever kind of uh, cultural alienation is at its highest for certain groups because if you look at horror movies in the like 60s and 70s yeah a, a lot of that Let's say like 60s, 70s, let's say 70s and 80s. So a lot of the fears in, let's say, some some 80s horror movies are like fears of change or fears of like cultural integration, fears of like exploring different planets or cultures and then having those affect you in a negative way. There were a bunch of aliens in the 80s. Yeah. Th and that's that's literal alienation. And then if you take, like, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street or anything like that, 
so much of the appeal of those movies was showing the lives of these uh, promiscuous teenagers that were born out of a sexually asexually and like generally permissive society that people didn't identify with like friday the 13th is a huge huge the uh, not version what's a more eloquent word critique it's a yeah it's a it's a huge critique of how people felt about teenagers at the time it's basically like a puritanical fable but semi-satirical yeah no like if you if you think about the tropes of horror movies and like the the underage drinking or skimpy clothing the partying and then those same people who are doing that are punished by this supernatural or just psychopathic killer and in in the movie when you're watching it you don't quite make the connection but it's become kind of a joke that oh yeah they they you know these kids deserve this because they were partying that was the literal thinking behind these movies in the 80s. Yeah, because, you know, we, we've entered, and we can talk about that after this, but we've entered an age where the thing that terrifies us is bad things happening to people for no reason. Yeah. But if you walk it back, the things that used to be sold to us as horror movies are things where we can be like, ah, I understand. They took the risks and they got machete killed. Pretty much, like a lot of these, a lot of the '80s and and uh, like even late '70s horror films are more like allegories than they are. They're like that they're trying to teach a lesson in the weirdest warped way possible. I was reading something not too long ago that, in passing, compared Friday the Thirteenth to being like uh, a play on AIDS, like the the hmm. the because in in the '80s a lot of people viewed the AIDS epidemic as something that was born out of, like, wanton promiscuity between young people. Yeah. And if you see that as, like, a, a parable between, like, these people are promiscuous, these people die, then it creates that, like, neural pathway in your brain. It satisfies that neural pathway when you're watching. We're like, ah, I understand the dynamic. Yeah. On paper, there is no association between the act and the punishment, but through them being next to each other, we get the implication. And I can't really... Well, I can speak to things in, like, the 90s, like Scream. Scream, which ultimately, at the beginning, was sort of supposed to be a satire of the horror genre. And I think that the 90s are... Now, this is going to sound weird and kind of bombastic but i think the 90s are the closest we get to like a cultural enlightenment yeah because we reached a level in the 90s where our fears weren't so much you know ah oh, things are other ah oh, iran contra all this other stuff so much of horror in the 90s was semi-satirical it was almost enlightened horror like look at things well i guess the faculty was was that early 2000s or was that 90s i don't know I can look it up. But a lot of the things that were happening in horror movies in the 90s like were right at the line of being like, is this a horror movie or is this satire? We had been doing it since Night of the Living Dead and even before that, like Nosferatu. Like, it, horror movies, they've been around for a while. And in the 90s, we were 
it was like a weird coming of age for society and culture as a whole. We were starting to look inward at what we were doing, at what, you know, the movies, the art we were creating and why we were creating it that way. And so we started to kind of poke fun of it almost in this postmodernist way to see how it worked. And we ended up with things like Scream, which if you look at Scream on the surface, it's totally making fun of things like Friday the 13th. And then if, I mean, so much of the 90s was like late postmodern art. And then I guess the thing that is really kind of obvious to me, at least I've always thought that this was the case, and you can refute this if I'm wrong, but like we turn the corner to the 2000s. And then we have things like Saw, and we have things like Hostel. We have movies where the central conceit, the central frightening thing about them is bad things are happening to people for no reason. I, I, I'm not going to disagree. Like I, I, This is kind of what I wanted to talk about. Is that in the 2000s, we completely lost it. Like it, It's like we were in the satirical 90s for so long that by the 2000s rolled around, it's like... No, let's go back to our roots. Let, let's let's really scare people this time. You know, let let's let's go all out. And what you have is a lot of just you have a lot of violent violence, a lot of bodily harm, but you don't have a lot of the the politically or socially charged horror anymore. I would almost characterize the horror in the early two thousands as being almost nihilistic. Yeah. Because if you look at like uh, like Cabin Fever, Hostel, and Saw, a lot of these were coming from a place and, you know, big cultural events were happening in the United States that were very scary, where bad things were happening to people for no reason, where we're like, the thing that scares us most is the idea that we can just be us, we can just be normal, but people are going to kill us anyway. Yeah, I mean, and a perfect example of that is The Ring. Oh, well, it, it came out in 2002, apparently, but if you think of the premise of The Ring, which is one of the, was my that was my first horror movie, people watch this videotape and then they'll die seven days later. Mm-hmm. The people aren't criminals. They're they're not. They don't represent any group. They're just happen. They're they're randomly selected by ha- just so happenly watching this video. And I mean, that's been a, a theme in like Japanese horror movies for a while, and I can't speak to culturally why that would be the case. But The Ring really, I think The Ring and either Saw or Hostel were kind of the two big archetypical early 2000s horror movies because of the two things they represented. Which are? Which is Saw slash Hostel is horrible things will happen to me for no reason. I will be kept in awful circumstances. I will be tortured and I will be killed. Yeah. And then The Ring took another tact, which a bunch of other movies did, which is, I'm just a person, I'm just living my life. By happenstance, like you said, I encountered this one thing, and now I am going to die or face a fate worse than death, inexorably, eventually. Yeah. It's an an inevitable demise. And and both of them are... They just come from a place of complete hopelessness, and I don't want to say it's because 9-11... But I feel like during that time, there was so much that was happening to our cultural identity that we couldn't not express that in movies. Yeah. You know, I've never thought of it in that frame, but if you think of the 9-11 attack, we were just minding our own business, so to speak, like the average person was going about their life, and suddenly we were attacked. 
Yeah, suddenly a bad thing was happening for seemingly no reason. Yeah, and, and I, I guess that is reflectant on the almost random happenstance of the horror movies of that time. Like, uh, when did The Hills Have Eyes come out? Uh, the original was in the 70s, but I think the remake was somewhere in the early 2000s. Let me look. Yeah, 2006. And, and that's just that's just people driving through a desert. Like, mm-hmm. they didn't... Like, it, it, Poltergeist, you, you think of, like, early horror movies, there's always a reason for the bad thing. Like, Poltergeist, the house was built on an, an Indian burial ground. They desecrated Indian graves. Mm-hmm. In the Hills of Eyes, people drive through a desert. Yeah, there, <laughs> they there, just drive through a desert. Yeah. There's, there's not... It's not like... Oh, they knocked down the weird radioactive mutant family's mailbox. That didn't happen. There's just people driving through a desert, and suddenly they're targeted by mutant freaks. But, I mean, you could then say that if a horror movie exists out of its time to be a critique of something that is, I guess, more primal or maybe less surface level, that it can be really stand out. Because look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a real standout in 70s horror because it's not alienation. Well, I guess it is alienation from the family, but it is hopeless, normal people having the worst thing happen to them for no reason. Yeah. Uh, But that came out in the 70s? I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in the 70s. What does that say about the 70s? Uh, I mean, so much of the 70s was preoccupied with, like, sex and horror and violence. So I feel like, I feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre not going for that and going for something much more primal. Because what Texas Chainsaw Massacre was doing was what no other movie was doing. Because Texas Chainsaw Massacre was essentially a movie about the meat industry. Like, the creator, after he made it, he was, he turned vegetarian and a bunch of people who worked on it were vegetarian after completion. And the story it was telling is what if people were just treated like cattle? Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. As I'm reading right now. And I mean, if, if you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre during some of the more awful scenes, uh, there's just soundtrack of slaughterhouses playing in the background. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre always has and always will freak me out. Yeah. According to this article by tasteofcinema.com, uh, the fear is not merely murder, but murder which is industrialized and commodified. The U.S.'s prolonged involvement in the Vietnam War catalyzed a movement of counterculture which focused concern on the fate of the new generation. So, yeah, it's like systematic murder tied to, because the family was, a, they, they were cannibals, Tied to meat as a commodity, but specifically human life, human meat as a, as a commodity. Yeah, because the, the whole terrifying thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, its whole thesis is human life is cheap and yours will end for no reason. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> this, are, th- this little blurb ends uh, with the Sawyer house is metaphoric for America itself. Outsider daffodils and a white picket fence providing the American dream, but inside are grisly relics of the killing needed to sustain capitalism. I think that that sounds like a pretty decent little article. Yeah. Uh, Apparently they're good. Yeah, apparently they're good. Or maybe they're bad. Who knows? Uh, Horror movies are a fascinating topic to me because 
other movies, I guess, are more on the nose with their message. Like, you think of, like, an anti... Uh, an, an anti-capitalist movie will have anti-capitalist messages in it, but horror movies, like, they disguise everything under symbolism and subterfuge in a way that's fascinating to dissect, but I still can't stand to watch them. I almost feel as though horror movies have to be one thing first, and that's scary. You know, you, you outside of maybe comedy, there is no harder kind of movie to make. Because you have to make something that is so perfectly of its time. And I feel like, and this is pure conjecture, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like sometimes horror movies exist in this sphere where they're just trying to provide something that's frightening and affecting. And they don't necessarily set out to have a message, but because it's so ingrained in the people who are making it, it ends up having a clear message. Yeah, like, I, I I don't think a lot of horror movies set out to be like, yeah, this is against the meat industry or something like that. But it's like, through making it increasingly horrifying, they end up striking a chord with like, yeah, we got slaughterhouses for the soundtrack, but man, like, that's exactly what we're doing here. I mean, if over months and years I had to have teased out of my brain everything that I think would scare someone, it would just be a list of things that I think would scare me. Yeah, I, I think the perfect horror movie for an individual has to be made by the individual. Henry, I, I just had an idea. What's up? Okay, and you're not going to like it. I don't like it. And you can edit it out. What are you going to do? But I think that it would be good for the month of October. To watch a horror movie every week? Watch one horror movie before we next convene and then give me... Just tell me about it. You would pick the one weekend where Jamie's not going to be here. It's, okay, look, it can be any horror movie. Like, I'm setting the bar very low. I want it to be scarier than Monster House. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I will try my my damnedest to pick a horror movie and watch it, and I'll tell you about it for the next episode. Have you seen Oculus? Is that about mirrors? Yes. No, no, no. Oculus is a good starter. It's really well made. No, I will not mares no because i'm gonna be by myself all weekend and there's a mare in here john there are two mares in this apartment okay here's the thing what uh i promise that i'm not gonna like make any like tomfoolery or monkey japes about it but find a horror movie and then if you want to like text me the name of it and i can tell you if it's going to be like super traumatic or if it doesn't meet my scariness criteria (laughs) all right i'm gonna i'm gonna scour the the streaming services available to me for a horror movie. Okay, and I'm not going to mess with you. I'm not going to be like, oh, my horror criteria has to be at least Splinter. Ugh. Oh. I had a list of recent horror movies up to kind of, like, probe them to see what the message behind them is, but maybe I'll just watch one. There's no better way to get the message. I don't know. How do you feel about the Bye Bye Man? I have no idea what that is. Yeah, me either. How about another one? I don't know. All of these are remakes. Like, that's another interesting thing about horror movies is they keep getting remade for some reason. At the very least, generally when horror movies are remade, their themes are different. Yeah, because they're being made in a different time. It would be impossible to remake the same horror movie and have it be exactly the same. 
Unless you remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre shot for shot, I guess. But that's, like, timeless. But then that would become, like, a weird practice in trying to recreate what you can't. Because, like, the, the methods that they went through to make Texas Chainsaw Massacre were, like, dehumanizing. Yeah, it was, uh... Filming conditions weren't great. And, you know, I guess the only other horror movie I can think of... The only horror movie, period... I can think of that has a shot-for-shot remake. I hate, and it's one of my least favorite movies ever. What is it? Funny Games. Oh, I can't watch that. (laughs) It's terrible. It's a real bad movie. I can't watch either version. Like, it's just, I, I don't get, I don't get that psychopathic thing. I I can't. And what they do to the family dog, I just, no. Yeah, one would be tough because it's in German. Yeah, I, I guess I saw the, uh... Someone tried to play the American remake then, because it was in English. Yeah, I just, or, I just genuinely don't like that movie. I think it's, I think it's narratively bankrupt. I think if you want to watch a movie about someone with sociopathic tendencies, watch, uh, watch Nightcrawler with Jake G- Gyllenhaal. I mean, okay, sociopathic tendencies is one thing, but the the narrative themes in that movie, the way those themes are explained, garbage garbage yeah. so you're it's a craft standpoint that you disagree with the movie yeah it's from a craft standpoint because the way the director chooses to tell chooses to convey his message in both is awful it's like if you it's like if you bought a tv like you went out and bought a tv but it didn't have any channels and the only thing it said when you start up was like look at you idiot buying a tv <laughs> an idiot box that calls out its own idiot box it's literally a horror movie that's like, oh, you vicious people and your love of these horror movies. But it's still just a stupid horror movie. Yeah. Ugh. I can't believe you're going to make me watch a horror movie. It'll be fine. Ugh. Like, it would be okay if I could have somebody here with me. Oh no, even better. Oh, it's the worst. I'm going to do it in the middle of the day. And I want to make it perfectly clear. If it's a horror movie that I think is too much, I'll tell you. Alright. At least I have that safety net. Because I, I've i watched a lot of horror movies, and I care about them, and I don't want your experience to be ruined. <laughs> I don't know if I can have a good experience with this. I mean, that's the point. Oh. Is that the point? Oh, man. This is going to be such a good next podcast. Oh. Did we land anywhere with our discussion of... Horror movies in society today? Uh, I think we landed on that, yes, they are influenced by society, and the themes they present might be uh, deeply hidden within the creators and not necessarily overt. Yeah, they're they're interesting to study, and I guess I'll be watching one, and I guess we could could analyze it together to try to pick it apart and find... Oh, shit, Henry what this is a zero credits first in this the month of halloween well what's happening the first ever two-part segment oh god the first ever cliffhanger segment henry we're gonna have a cliffhanger (laughs) (laughs) we got to the 2000s we didn't discuss the 2000 the the oddies does do those matter or are those too recent uh i was trying to think about it and i i I don't know what the theme is. Like, I was trying to put a bunch of movies together, and I just can't. I feel like the closer we get to now, or what I'm going to call the Event Horizon, 
the the more jaded we are about just all of the remakes and sequels that are coming out. So it, like the theme would be gross commercialization of a time-honored genre. But there's also the argument that history is nearsighted and you can never tell what time you're in while you're currently living it. Yeah, that's why I always say it takes 20 years to know what was going on. Well, catch me in 20 years, Henry, and then I'll tell you what was up with the goddamn bye-bye man. All right, I'm going to make a note of that, and then when we're still doing this podcast in 20 years, I'm going to bring it up. Thank God, I'll speak into my million-dollar microphone. No, <laughs> because we're going to be insanely rich by then. No, it's because of inflation. Oh, okay. So it's actually going to be a really cheap microphone. Oh, yeah, it's much worse than the blue snowball. Oh, it's going to be like the blue crud ball. Well, we won't have snow anymore because of global warming, so yeah. Yeah, the, the blue mud ball. The blue mud ball. Uh. Did did we did we set out to did we accomplish what we set out to do this episode? Uh, did we? <laughs> Let me tell you what we accomplished, Henry, and you tell me if this is good for a Halloween podcast. All right. I got very scared multiple times in real life. Yeah, I, I got really creeped out too. I actually had to like close out my internet window because I couldn't look at the uh, the covers of of horror movies anymore. They're all so scary. Yeah, I've got a picture up from something that happened in Russia, and there's like a guy laying on the ground, and there's a bunch of ski poles behind him, but it's an old picture, so it looks like big weird spikes are coming out of his body, and I had to close that. Ugh. Earlier I was researching the uh, another case that I might have read uh, at the opening of the podcast, the, uh, the Taman Shud case. And everywhere you look for that case, it's just, there's a picture of the guy, and it's just like, I don't need to see his face. I don't even know what that is. Maybe I'll bring it up in uh, two weeks. That sounds good. I've got one for next week. Alright, well, I feel like we should, uh, we should <laughs> wrap ourselves in blankets and try to shake off these creeps by ending this episode. Yeah, uh, I don't know. If if it's a success by scaring us, hopefully it scared you, listeners. Yeah, I mean, I keep getting creeped out by every episode we do. Well, good. Anyway, I think uh, that, uh, that that puts a, a lid on this, the second week of the month of Halloween. <laughs> oh, what's that? It's the sound of the social media demon. <laughs> yes, it's I. The social media demon. Oh no! What 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 social media are you going to plug? Oh, today I'm going to plug everything <laughs> by making you do it. Oh God, Jesus! Do it. I'm overtaken by the spirit of the social media demon. Oh, you can follow us on Twitter at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com. You can send us a DM. You can send us an email at ZeroCreditsIsAPodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send us longer things. We are on Facebook. Search Zero Credits Podcast on the Facebook search bar, and it'll be somewhere uh, we stream video games at twitch.tv slash zero credits, and you can find us on iTunes where you should like, comment, and subscribe. And if you rate us this month, you will be entered into the Zero Credits Frightened Time Skeleton Test. That's correct. 
everyone who enters the test is automatically entered into a contest to win a, f- uh, a fun p- prize package that includes the movie Dead Birds, which is John's favorite horror movie. Yeah, Dead Birds and a whole bunch of other secrets. Maybe we'll reveal them as the weeks go on. I've already revealed that also included is my favorite horror co- story collection. Uh, the f- the famous scary... What was it called? Scary Tales to Tell in the Dark. Ooh, that's two of many things. What else awaits this devious loot crate? Nope, not Ooh. loot crate. That's a thing that is that registered elsewhere. Spook crate. Oh, so good, spook crate. That's correct. And I guess... Uh, from everyone here at the Zero Credits Studios, we wish you a scary week. We wish you a... S- of- hey, Henry? What's up, John? What's that weird long-fingered hand coming out of your doorway? Wait, what the... Stranger Things music. <laughs> <laughs>